0: And he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, hello, and welcome to this episode of Reclamation Theology. I'm your host, Angela Tomlinson, and with me on the line, we have two very special guests. First of all, I would like to welcome my sister, Marianne Harold, who is the president and founder of WQPH, Queen of Perpetual Help, in Massachusetts, and she's the one who instigated, I think, us having WSFI, so welcome, Marianne.
1: Welcome, Angela. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. Thanks for being on the show. And also, we have our very special guest, Kyle Clement. For those of you who aren't familiar with Kyle Clement, loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, Clement has been involved in the curriculum, consultation, and formation of priests and laity relating to Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. A member of the Religious Association Societas Matris Dolorissime. With Father Chad Ripperger as his superior, he provides instruction, evaluation, case investigation, consultation, and ongoing formation for bishops, exorcists, dioceses, and religious institute in the United States and beyond. He is also the founder with Father Ripperger of the Liber Christo movement. Is that right, Kyle? How am I doing?
2: You're doing great, Angela. Thanks. Libra Cristo. You can find us at www.libercristo.org.
0: And, you know, Kyle, I did take a few minutes and I went through your website. After our last show, you had mentioned all the good things that you had on your website at Libra Cristo. And you certainly do. You didn't oversell it. So thank you for putting that out there.
2: Thank you very much, Angela. Libra Cristo is a tremendous uh, resource. Um, it's the go-to for the Catholic answers on spiritual warfare it is the Catholic approach the Catholic methodology to liberation and the the reason that we say it's the Catholic approach is the centrality of the sacraments to this approach the return necessity to return to the sacraments and the central role and and very important role of the Blessed Mother um, in this in this whole process and so these are the things that we've lost, Is uh, and, and part of reclamation theology is to go back to what it is to be Catholic.
0: And what is it to be Catholic, Kyle?
2: It is to be the conscience of the culture. It is to, to say the unpleasant truths, to fought further doctrine and dogma of the church the salvation it is about thirst for souls it's not about uh, satisfaction it's about sanctification it's about conversion it's not about coexistence and so these are some of the of the phrases that we've been derailed by Um, so much has emphasis has been placed on social justice to the exclusion of salvation Um, so much has been emphasis has been placed on socialism to the exclusion of salvation. So much emphasis has been placed upon uh, societal interaction and and culture to the exclusion of salvation. It is about salvation. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? This is old school theology. It's It's the only path to heaven when you when you've got prelates who will say Jesus is the prefer, Jesus is the preferred route, <laughs> this is this doesn't square with centuries of tradition. Jesus Himself said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father unless He comes through Me." So, the centrality of the sacraments to being reconciled with God the Father to redefine healing as reconciliation with God the Father, not the cessation of physical suffering we've lost the concept and re- realization of the value of redemptive suffering. So that's the short riff on what you'll find in Libra Cristo is the tools, the methodology to unlock and to reclaim <clears throat> our Catholic heritage for the good of the world. Not, not just an arrogant, exclusionary thing, but for the good of the world. If we don't preserve the faith, who will?
0: Kyle, when you said liberation, liberation, liberation from what?
2: Liberation from, these are, to quote Archbishop Fulton Sheen, it's not liberation from something, it's liberation for something. And that for something would be as defined by St. Thomas Aquinas, doctor of the Church and preeminent theologian in the Catholic Church, that liberation for something is pure sacrifice to God, back to God, giving ourselves back to God. So what prevents us from doing that? And so it's liberation not only from the dark forces of the the adversary, but mostly, most importantly from us. There's there's three ways to fall: the world, ourselves, and the devil. And the devil is only one third; he's only a small part. Our humanity, our fallen nature has to be overcome, has to be strived against. The desire to be popular in the world, the desire to be, quote, modern in style and to, to be, um, be able to slip in and out of culture, this is, in large part, the modernism and relativism that has destroyed our church or is in the process of destroying the church. Um, the idea that we've lost who it is, who our identity and so that's liberation from those three areas but most importantly and i would put it at the top of the list is our own fallen humanity and our desire to be affirmed by men rather than our desire to be pleasing to god
0: well you know kyle when Miriam, you can affirm this when my sister and i were growing up that word liberation it meant
1: what was it called in women's lib Women's lib yes Women's yes, I lib- like grew up in the college days when, uh, what was that activist that was so popular then? Gloria Steinem. You remember? Gloria Steinem, was yeah. it? Yeah, yes. So that was a new role
0: model. And what was Women's Liberation, yeah, so-, the end, so that Because we're generation removed from some of
1: our listeners. What was the Women's Lib Movement? The Women's Lib Movement? You know, well, I see. We, I think, we can see it today, and how it's drivelled down into our own political and society with women uh, gearing up to try to, you know, be the dominant gender instead of what we're supposed to be. You know. Adam and Eve story that most people find very unpopular, but it's the truth, and and today, if I could just bring up today, I just came from Mass, we had a great deacon who said the story of John the Baptist today, and it's about political correctness and speaking out uh, with Herod and John the Baptist losing his head. So uh, Kyle, I I really uh, commend you and Angela for doing these very brave uh, programs on a subject that nobody's talking about right? The political silence, the spiritual, religious silence that's going on. We have socialists that are running. I know you mentioned that word. We have socialists that ran and won and dominate our school committee locally. Uh, Two on our city council. Nobody's talking about this because we all have a right to be the new woman.
0: So what what do you say to Marianne's comments about being brave enough to speak out and and she also brought up the subject of socialism.
2: First of all, with regard to bravery, I am not brave. I am fearful. I am fearful for particular judgment when I stand in front of our Lord and I look him in the eye and I say, I did not speak. I didn't bear witness to you, Lord. I didn't say the things that, were on, that you put on my heart with regard to truth, absolute truth. I didn't take the unpopular stance. I can't say that to our Lord, so I'm fearful. I'm fearful of him that I cannot stand in judgment, but who I love is my Savior. I am fearful of the fires of hell. I am fearful that this faith will be lost because good men say nothing. I'm not a good man, and so I can say something. Um, so I, I, I don't think, let's don't mark it to bravery. Let's let's mark it to fear. Let's mark, let's mark it to... One who stands with his toes over the edge of the abyss and does not want to drag others with me uh, in, into those fiery into those fiery pits, and so it's the realization that God places on our hearts and in our mouths the words: "Will we be? Um, will we have the fortitude to, to speak those words? Fortitude, being defined by Saint Thomas, as the willingness to engage the arduous." Um, there's a desire in all of us to be liked by our fellow man, but that has to be suppressed. It has to be put in right order. And we have to desire the affirmation of the creator rather than the affirmation of the creature. We have to be focused on the creator. We have to be ad orientum, focused on God and the Son rather than focused on man. We have to turn back toward God. And so I think that this is becoming a realization as to the second part of your question or observation, the feminine spirit has run, run rampant since the garden and it's been reinvented and reinvented. And it's part of the harshness of um, that that develops in a disordered relationship between men and women. And the latest time that this comes up is the, for lack of a better term, women's lib movement, liberation Um, From what? The proper constructs of authority. And it's a form of rebellion. It's a form of rebellion against God the Father. But ultimately what the feminist spirit does is it robs women of all the joys of right daughterhood, motherhood, relationship to God the Father, the blessings of rightly ordered feminist, the the rightly ordered uh, relationship of the feminine to the masculine. And it denies the masculine the opportunity to become masculine. It's a blurring of the roles. So when the female ceases to support the male as the head of the domestic church, then she is apostate. And then the male acquiesces. This is the sin of Adam, the sin of of masculine lethargy, to do nothing, Um, and the, the sin of Eve where she wants to control. So you see how this continues to replay. It's the same old shoot-em-up, just, you know, in the words of Coelho, there's nothing new under the sun, vanity of vanities. And so this plays to that. Um, the loss of right roles in the rewriting of moral theology in the modern era, to where the we are now find ourselves, as men and women, in a howling wasteland devoid of the landmarks of virtue and right order and right roles. And so we don't know how to interact with each other. Trust is further lost. We become adversarial. Rather than compliment each other, we criticize each other. Rather than build each other up for the kingdom of God, we turn and fight in our own ranks for control. Um, largely focused on temporality and so that's you ask what I thought that's what I think and and uh, it's not an opinion I am trying to avoid opinion as St. Thomas tells us and instructs us opinion kills counsel but I'm a keen observer and I know what I observe and for the women that we deal with um, and, and we assist quite often diabolical affliction Is articulated in a family is articulated by the woman we're having problems because she has become the spiritual authority because she's become the spiritual authority grace is disordered in the home the relationship of the household to God Almighty is now disordered and it's the old argument that if the man's not doing it the woman has to do it this this disorders the entire relationship um, because it it militates against right roles and the flow of grace through the constructs of the sacrament.
0: Oh. You were just mentioning um, that spirit of rebellion, Kyle. What are the spirits, you know, we hear, have a lot at play where men want to be women, women want to be men. I heard Father Chad once talking about the, the table of five and the spirits that sit at that table of five. I don't know if you're familiar with that talk that he's given maybe walk us through that table because I found that very interesting and you can see that all five at the table seem very active today playing out in our culture.
2: Um, I would direct I would direct those to listen to it directly from Father Ripperger because I can't do it justice but essentially that the concept is this is that these spirits work in concert once you begin to, to give in to them um, then you lose the ability to tell clean from unclean and it just becomes a matter of degrees. Um, on this day where Saint John the Baptist in the, in the new um, in the new calendar was talked about by the deacon. essentially you, you look at a man who um, he was first among men. trick question alert and we'll we'll just step into some some fun theology if you will. Saint John was different from all other men. And Jesus himself said he was first among men. So, the the tradition is that John the Baptist was born without original sin. And so, let me clarify. It's not that he was conceived without original sin, but he was born because he was vivified by the Holy Spirit in his response in the womb to the Blessed Mother and to Jesus. And so, he perceives the presence of his cousin the Savior, the Messiah, and leaps in Elizabeth's womb, at the um, and receives the Holy Spirit in proximity to Christ. And so, this is a traditional teaching that that we've largely lost. That that sets John apart. We hear John again in the prologue to John's Gospel, Saint John writing about John the Baptist, and there was a voice crying out in the desert. This is all of us we are all called to cry out from the desert. We are in the desert. We are in a spiritual desert. We're in a spiritual place of no nutrition, no landmarks, howling wasteland. And so we're to proclaim the coming of the Christ. We're to proclaim, repent. Listen to the words of John the Baptist, repent. And so the response to us when we do this is going to be the response of the Herods of the world to John the Baptist, listen to the to the story. Herod was captivated by John's telling the truth because the truth resounded in Herod. The natural law was in Herod because he's a creature. He's a he's a uh, he was made by God the Father, the Creator, and so this natural law he was endowed with this understanding of right and wrong. And so what John was speaking was novel because no one else was telling the truth. He had all kinds of people who were patting him on the back telling him he was doing good. If you embark on a life of sin, especially self-justified habitual mortal sin, all kinds of people will come to you and tell you you're doing the right thing. All kinds of people will come to you and tell you that you're doing the right thing to abandon vocation, to live for self. And so Herod was enamored with John but Herod was trapped in his sexuality and, his, and in the perversion, his desire for his brother's wife. To look at this in spiritual terms, the dancer was dancing the dance of Belial. Belial is a demon, it was an angel created to ensure purity and right roles. But Belial is one of the demons of transgender. Because in the dance of Belial, the dancer would dress in an androgynous way or an asexual way. This is very well depicted. This countenance is very well depicted in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ when the devil appears in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is it a man or is it a woman? If you ask a woman, they'd say it was a man. If you ask a man, they'd say it was a woman. This is Belial. And so it's arousal for the sake of arousal. It is the transgender. It is that which is perversion for the sake of perversion. And so to dance the dance of Belial, meaning the dancer would dance in a seductive way, which would arouse both men and women. And both of them would have an experience based upon this exotic or erotic uh, dance. Herod and his guests are so aroused, they lose, and Herod loses all concept when he says, And this is what we say to the demon when we give into this. Name your price. I will give you anything up to half of my kingdom. Listen to that language. Because the faculties are so diminished in this state of arousal, he says, and he's in a place of compromised judgment, he says, I'll give you anything in my kingdom up to half. She's drunk upon her power over his masculinity. This is another feature of the feminist spirit, is it militates toward men. Once it can get a man to diminish or relinquish his faculties, then it will try to dominate. And a classic example of this is the feminist mantra uh, in the 60s and into the 70s was men are unfeeling. And then once it convinced men that they had to cry, then it jumped on them for being weak. And so that's exactly what happens here. Uh, And the mother very, very cunningly says immediately, ask for the head of John the Baptist because she wants to silence the voice of truth, the only voice of truth and possible conviction in Herod's life. And if Herod starts listening to John the Baptist, then her power base is gone. And so when the feminist realizes that the power of vocation and, and right union between the feminine and the masculine is the source of power. And when I kneel next to my husband and my husband kneels next to me and we pray together and our hearts are in one accord and we desire the same thing with regard to salvation, then the demon is vanquished and he's going to fight this at every turn. And so he rises up this animosity. So all over the all over the landscape, we see good men who say nothing and they, they capitulate to get along and women who press this advantage for control. Um, this is not the way it was designed to be, but, but this is the way it works out and so you've got Belial and then the Lars, uh, the murderous spirit that is that demands the head of, of John. This is Beelzebub, this is Beelzebub who, who militates against all the John the Baptist in the world. He is there to devour the woman and her child. He's there to devour the Christ and to to silence the voice. Then the others. There's other spirits that that enter into this Leviathan, which exists on, on its own power, drunk on its own power. Um, one of the primary um, spirits that we that we deal with in homosexuality um, or in gender confusion. Well, what a, what a goofy phrase. Um, one of the spirits we deal with is Leviathan, and it's the strength that one, uh, it's a constricting spirit, it, so it draws down, and this is what makes people want to uh, act out. It's the emphasis that you must um, express yourself, you, you must express yourself, and then you, you must control how others interact with you I think this is one of the features of diabolically fueled personality is they demand that their parents interact with them only a certain way or their siblings or this is one of the the hallmarks or landmarks of diabolical influence uh, and in this next remark we've gotten so far away from common sense if you're confused about your gender go to your birth certificate. It is a tremendous source of knowledge because someone smarter than you looked at you and said, that's a male or that's a female. And it'll also tell you who your parents were. It'll tell you where you were born. It will tell you your ethnicity. It's an amazing source of information. And it was filled out by people who knew more about you than you know about yourself. Pay attention to wise counsel, (laughs) pay attention to this. We've, we've lost all of the virtues that surround the ability to yield to right counsel and to yield to truth. And so the demon gets a hold in not only our theology, but in our personality and in our belief system, when we become self-justified in denying truth, denying reality.
0: So Kyle, what you just said is two of the five seats at that table have to do with human sexuality, perverting human sexuality, distorting it. One was the one that uh, the transgender one that you mentioned, and the second one was this Leviathan. Why is that so important to the dark side, to to the devil, to distort our sexuality?
2: The first blessing is a great question. Let's go back to Genesis 2 the first blessing god blessed them saying go forth and multiply and subdue the earth bringing it under your dominion so what he's saying is in these two areas procreation and rightly ordered procreation within the sacrament of marriage and right stewardship dominion versus domination it is in these two things that you are blessed meaning that you are most like me God the creator and that you are most open to sanctifying grace the demon is listening to this and hearing this and he says okay this is their compatibility with God when they do this this is when they are most godlike so that's precisely where he's going to attack us we cease to be godlike we we lose the likeness of God when we misuse the conjugal act We misuse the conjugal act because of our own self-importance. Ultimately, every misuse of the conjugal act is a denying of God the Father as God. So it's a first commandment infidelity, first and foremost. Explain
0: that, Kyle. I don't understand that.
2: Go forth and multiply. What does that really mean? Man is the steward of the seed. It is up to the man to, uh, the masculine role is to determine the circumstances of procreation. In the fall, this becomes exactly inverted, and we see modernly that largely it's women who control the frequency, the location, the, and when I say location, how and where this, the conjugal act occurs, the circumstances surrounding it. And so that's become inverted. Man was not to demand the conjugal act, it was to be the steward of the seed of all mankind so that it's properly um, exercised, this, this dominion is properly exercised versus domination. When you see it this way, then you see where every marriage starts to go off the rails, every uh, relationship starts to go off the rails. Priests especially don't understand the power of virginity and purity. It it is amazing to me the number of priests that we deal with and clergy that we deal with that have this disordered understanding of sexuality and the necessity and power, not only of celibacy, of virginity. Virginity is one of the most powerful forces because it's properly ordered sexuality. It, It is one of the most powerful forces in the universe, and the demon militates against it. To punctuate this point, the most sacred place on the face of the earth is the womb of a woman, for it is there that flesh is knit upon a soul. And so the demon wants to defile every womb out there, and he uses young men and their lust as a tool, pun intended, for the desecration of this sacred place. And so... When you see that, you see the, the the real impact of pornography and the real impact of disordered sexuality.
0: You know, we'll be doing a show this Thursday on healing from pornography, the one that you just touched. It was triggered by watching the halftime at the Super Bowl, Kyle. I, you probably didn't watch it. No. It's like the spirits that you just mentioned that are kind of driving the bus here, Belial and Leviathan. Those two, I think, for our listening audience that watched the halftime of the Super Bowl, you can see them in living flesh acting out. And it was it was such a disappointment because at our board meeting we were talking to our spiritual advisors, and they were saying the number one confessed sin is addiction to pornography. And then you see, you mentioned the other spirit that was talking about the spirit of murder with John the Baptist, uh, Beelzebub. And it's almost like we can see that being played out in that if you say anything, for example, if you speak out against why it's not in that person's soul, his own best interest to go down the paths that they're going down, they want to shut you up. Is that totalitarian? Is that the spirit of Beelzebub, Kyle, that we see being acted out that wants to
2: shut down the discourse? It is. It is very much, and what you see in the church today, in the hierarchy of the church, let's be very, very frank, is you see the um, joining or the conspiracy between um, Belial, sexual perversion, homosexuality specifically, and Beelzebub and so this is to silence the voice of opposition this is clerical bullying this is um, making someone non-existent you erase them essentially and so you diminish the dignity of their person you militate directly against um, them so it starts out as a character assassination and this is precisely what they did to our lord is if you attack the character then you don't have to deal with the message what we understand as Catholics is you have to acknowledge the truth no matter whose mouth it comes out of, and the Lord will place it in mouths that you don't want to hear it out of. <laughs> and so it is very, very difficult to be a masculine priest today. It is look at what's happening in the seminaries. They've become homosexual brothels for the large part. And I know I'm painting with a very large brush, but there is this is what Jesus was talking about when he said you whitewash tombs. There's this outward um there's this outward appearance, but inside there is this insidious militation against the Orthodox. The most discriminated person in the world today is a Orthodox white male Catholic. Bottom line, you guys are trying to marginalize us. You talk about us, you don't talk to us. We are heads of the domestic church. We have a voice at this table. And so the more that you marginalize us, push us to the side, try to erase us, the more you respond to us out of your homosexuality, the way a woman, a feminist woman would respond to diminish us, this will not go well for you. This will not go well for you.
0: You know, there was a show last night that I happened to catch and it was about white men and it said there was a professor that was on. He was saying, I think that men are four times more likely to commit suicide. They're more than twice as likely. I mean, you went through the the pain that you know we hear about women, and we appreciate the love and affection and concern about women. But when he went through statistic after after statistic about what's going on with white men in our country, I mean, it was it was staggering, Kyle. It was staggering, and I think part of it might be exactly what you're pointing at.
2: Another spirit here that comes into this play, um, and it is the spirit of Lilith. Lilith is one of the spirits, one of the five named in Scripture. There are five demons named in Scripture. And so Lilith is one of those that is named in Scripture. And she militates against masculinity because she hates masculinity. And it's any, ma- ma- any man who acts in a masculine way, especially those in a position of authority, it's not enough to step them to the side she must destroy them and so you you see this when you hear the, the militant the the hatred the visceral reaction toward the masculine from other men but homosexual men and so the reason being is Lilith sees the masculine male who will speak the truth and is and is willing to act uh, against the unclean she sees him as a direct threat and he is a direct threat to that deviant feminist uh, spirit so Lilith is a very very um, but Lilith be, beware of Lilith Lilith drives women and she's extremely subtle so what she does is she will start with a compassion and she will start with a compassion to where a woman wants to befriend a priest or befriend clergy or befriend another man she works out of a out of a position of familiarity. She is a true assassin. An assassin would be someone who got close enough that he could stab you in the back. Um, and so that's the... It, it. She drives women to the altar. She wants to supplant the priesthood. She wants to supplant masculine roles in the household. She wants to supplant and subject that. And so that the man serves the woman. And so it's an exact inversion that militates here. Um, so women really examine your relationship to your husband or the male authority in your life, because it's through that construct that grace flows and Lilith will systematically remove you from the flow of grace. First of all, out of compassion. And it sounds like this. Oh, my husband bless his heart. He's so stressed and and he's just not a spiritual guy. He just doesn't get it. Bless his heart. It starts that way. Then out of that familiarity, it becomes He is so dense, he will never get it. Then in a later stage, it is this idiot, this lummox. He not only does he not get it, he's holding me back. He's holding me back from pursuing real spirituality. So there's a progression of Lilith and, and her influence in someone's life. Women, if you're being, quote, called to the altar, to be a Eucharistic minister, to be a lector, to be on that third step, that perdia, to be up in the presence of that. Really examine where is that call coming from? Is it coming out of self-importance because is it coming out of a misplaced sense of service? Is it coming out of a desire to discharge a masculine role? Here's what Lilith also does, Lilith wrecks families. She wants to destroy your marriage. And you can see Lilith in a marriage where the husband is doing his ministry, the wife is doing her ministry, and they're doing nothing together. She's effectively divided the marriage, and their prayer is is fractured. There, there, there's no... There's no meritorious marriage, prayer of the marriage. There's not a common intercession, except for maybe their apostate children. Apostate children and children away from the faith are, are a marker of Lilith having been in a marriage. Um, there's usually a reconversion or a, or a deepening of the faith on one part of the spouse, and there's a resentment on the other part. But all of these are features that give you an idea. These are tracks, if you will, of the Lilith spirit that that preys on, and, and ultimately her focus is the marriage, because it is through the marriage that that the grace, that sacramental grace flows to humanity, to the children, to others. And so if she can fracture the marriage, if the demon can fracture the marriage, then that's, that's the goal. He's not interested in us individually as much as he's interested in the constructs of vocation.
0: And Kyle, you mentioned vocations to the priesthood. Is Lilith the one who goes after vocations to the priesthood or is there another one?
2: There's several that go after them. Uh, First of all is Lilith goes after it to corrupt the vocation. So if a woman is preying upon seminarians and you know, guys, let's let's call a spade a spade. We all know every single seminary has got one to five young women who prey on the seminarians. Identify these women, get them in prayer. Deal with this because they're afflicted and they're fracturing vocations. Modernly, priesthood formation or priesthood of the religious, a formation of the of the religious. The idea that you're going to encourage a young man who's discerning this vocation to go and date, ludicrous, ludicrous. Um, also, let's talk about the call to vocation, reclamation theology. We need to talk about what is pure call to vocation. If you tell me, I know I'm supposed to be married because I'm called to be a father, that's disordered. That is not a righteous call to vocation. If you tell me I'm called to be a priest, that's a disordered call the call is to give yourself to God and allow a superior to determine if you're going to be a father in the case of marriage the superior that determines if you're going to be a father is God does he bless the marriage with children thereby you would become a father in the invocation you join for the purpose of formation and a superior determines whether you're the, you need to be a priest or not This gets circumvented modernly, especially after the 60s, when the emphasis is on the secular or diocesan priesthood, which there is no supporting brotherhood or ongoing transitional diaconate that fuels the priesthood, that finds perfection or completion in ordination. When a man enters a seminary, the presumption is he will be a priest. That didn't used to be that way. We allowed formation and a superior to determine whether you were going to be a father, whether you were going to receive responsibility for souls. We've got a lot of young men out there who 50 years ago, 60 years ago, would have been disqualified from the seminary based upon carnal knowledge of a woman, based upon previous experience, the concept of late vocation, where I've tried three or four other things, and now I'm going to come to the priesthood. These are all things that are problematic. They are extremely problematic. Permanent deaconate. There are some problems there because of the canonical structure of a transitional state, which was now made permanent. All of these things can be cleaned up, but we have to go back to reclamation theology and pre-1960s moral theology to clean them up. I'm not saying we need to abolish these constructs. What I'm saying is They've been in place for several years. We've identified where they're vulnerable, how the demon is infiltrating and working in them. We need to address these things rather than to go in our merry way as if nothing's wrong. We're turning out priests, deacons, marrieds who are not properly formed. Their theology is faulty. Their morals of theology are faulty. There's a lack of virtue across the landscape. Let's address this. We have the theology and the methodology to address it for the good of mankind, for the salvation of souls. Let's address these issues.
0: So, Kyle, you mentioned uh, what Lilith does. Is there another? You said there were several spirits that try to derail vocations.
2: The, another spirit that derails vocation is Asmodeus. We we hear Asmodeus in um, the book of, of Tobit. Remember that Asmodeus strangles the husbands of Sarah. And so... Are, it, and so Asmodeus militates against vocation. Interestingly enough, Asmodeus has morphed through the ages, but it's the same effect. It's the same net game. Right now, Asmodeus is present in the millennials in the following way. Oh, you must take a long and, and, and serious time of discernment. Discernment takes years. You must choose correctly if God is going to bless you to discover God's plan for you. Does this sound familiar? Saint Alphonsus Liguori says that a vocation delayed is a vocation denied. He says, choose a path, God blesses the commitment. The blessing is not dependent upon the right choice. The blessing is on the commitment to whatever choice you do make. And it is a willingness to go through far better or far worse. And it's the pure motivation in the vocation, which is to give your life to God and let it a superior determine exactly what that looks like. Um, It's not about meeting Mrs. Wright or finding the right religious order. It's about making a commitment and conforming your will to God's will through that vocation. Asmodeus is very much about, if you'll remember, we enter the scene in Tobit where Sarah's wanting to die. Asmodeus has convinced her, you're unfit for any vocation. That's ultimately the end game of Asmodeus. Is if he can delay vocation, then he. If he can't delay vocation, then he will push the despair. You're unfit for service uh, because of whatever may have happened. You can't do this or that, um, and so it, he's he pushes despair as the answer, whereas Lilith pushes rebellion as the answer. So all of these different things, the demons will push something as as an ultimate offense against God that denies the soul reconciliation with God through redemptive suffering, through the human experience, through that, through this this valley of tears, through this. It's not about happiness. We equate vocation with happiness. In what vocation am I going to be happy? It's not what it's about. In what vocation will I achieve eternal life and bring other souls to salvation? That's the question. And so Asmodeus gets us to focus on self rather than focus on God in this narrow area.
0: So, and I think people don't understand that their battle is not with flesh and blood, but with, I mean, it is flesh and blood as we go into Lent. But it's also, as you mentioned, each of those spirits are militating against Our end goal against salvation and the salvation of others so there's the spiritual because I I know people will send people to psychologists so they'll say that's where she's happy why would God create this person that way and deny them happiness I mean there's this
2: culture of rationalization yeah that's relativism and modernism and it's simply not Catholic it very simply it is not Catholic However God created you, I think we have to understand something, that this was probably the last choice made in your life that was made totally by God, without any human will interfering. And that is God chooses precisely the conception, the gender, the parents, the ethnicity, the family, the time in in history. He sends your soul not randomly he sends it specifically and he sends your soul exactly the same way he sent Jesus Christ for the purpose of salvation to suffer to, to minister to spread the gospel to reconcile humanity to God the Father through whatever your experience may be we've lost that we've abs- that is at the core of reclamation theology is each and every one of us has a christ-like mission monsignor john s have said for years you are jesus christ in the world today he's exactly right he is exactly right but what does jesus what does that look like it is suffering it is pain It is the understanding that most of the people that you speak to do will not understand in this lifetime the import of your words. And you must die well and die in your mission. You must apply all your suffering to the salvation of souls. All of your human experience has to be about the thirst of salvation for souls if you're going to be Christ-like. This idea of seeking temporal happiness in some deviant practice... This is absolutely diabolical, but here's the key part of this discussion, and that is this. The demon cannot and will not be present to you if you are in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Let's go back to the fall. Eve is in the wrong place, proximity of the tree, doing the wrong thing, contemplating the fruit, And then she engages in the first ecumenical theological dialogue, which is speaking to the snake about what God really said and the implications of God's will. That's the way it works, and it still works. So before the temptation takes root, before the demon is present to you in an extraordinary way, you have ruptured the relationship with God. You are in a state of sin. You are in a state of at least the contemplation of a grave matter before you can hear the demon because otherwise you can't hear him Other, if you're in a state of grace you can't hear him you're, it's, you can dispel temptation you can dispel these aberrant thoughts you can practice custody of the mind that's when the faculties work the way they are supposed to work it is when we're in a state of sin and our intellect is darkened that we are now open and vulnerable to the demon he never attacks the innocent bottom
0: line. And Kyle, we're going into Lent and our next show is will be on the first Friday again in March, but we only have about five or six minutes. Do you have some advice about how we should approach going into the Lenten season?
2: Thanks, Angela. Um, I think that to familiarize yourself with this approach, which it is the monastic approach. It is the approach of vibrant Catholic life. It There are many devotions and practices. Go to www.libercristo.org for more information about all of these things and some resources. But I would encourage you to do two things during this Lent. Number one is choose one spiritual classic. And I would highly recommend *Spiritual Combat*, Dom Lorenzo Scapoli. *Spiritual Combat*, Dom Lorenzo Scapoli. And I would recommend the edition, the tan edition. It's more readable. Um, Satan so Publishing, Dom Lorenzo Scapoli, um, *Spiritual Combat*. And in the forty days of Lent, read one small piece of that have a radical lent reclaim your catholic heritage by reforming your intellect first and foremost that's number one number two all of us talk about giving things up it's going to be amazing if you will do this it's extremely hard have no conversation during the 40 days of Lent that you know will evoke an emotional response from the person you're speaking to. I want you to practice strict, radical charity and, and examine how you speak to others. Give them the opportunity to do the right thing. Do not disturb anyone's peace. Do not bring up a topic or anything else that you think has any possibility of disturbing their peace. And what you find is your conversation is immediately purified and you start seeing the other person as a soul, not as a human being whose emotions may be ni- manipulated by saying, hey, what about that coronavirus or whatever it is? Or what, what about what this prelate said? Or what did you think about what the Pope said? That's em- emotionally inflammatory. It's emotionally inflammatory refrain from those conversations during the 40 days of Lent. And Sundays are not a day off. They're not a day off. They're a feast day. But the other practices that you have during Lent doesn't matter. Doesn't mean that you can, can gorge on media or you can gorge on whatever it was you gave up. Sunday's a feast day, but it's to be done in honor of the Lord. Let's reclaim our theology. Let's reclaim our identity. Let's reclaim who we are. Libra Cristo has many, many methodologies on how to be Catholic, how to reclaim our Catholic faith. Do we show up in front of the Lord at particular judgment and say, oh yeah, I had my sacraments of initiation. I made my confirmation. I went to mass at least twice a year. Um, can I get in? Are you gonna look him in the eye and say that? Or are you gonna look him in the eye and say, mercy, mercy, Lord, I, I proclaimed your name every chance I could every chance I could. Can we say that? That's what it is to be Catholic. That's what it is to be the culture, the uh, conscience of the culture. That's what it is to speak power to authority. That's what it is to love your priest and then tell him exactly what you're hearing in the homily and the struggles you're having at home being head of the domestic church, being a wife, telling the things that you need let him smell the sheep. Let him understand exactly where he's being driven and where you're being driven. And we we are begging for spiritual dominion, not spiritual domination. Don't tell us things we know are not true. Don't try to say, because I'm a priest or because I'm a bishop or because I'm a cardinal archbishop and I tell you this, you must yield to it not if it doesn't conform with morals in the sensum of the, faith, the tradition of the faith, the sense of the faithful fathers, deacons. We as lay faithful, especially men, this is part of our role is to discern clean from unclean. We have a built in spiritual BS meter and we know when it goes off and we're going to start telling you because a lot of what you're telling us Is not good for us and it's not good for our families. And we have to stand in front of our Lord and answer for the souls that he placed in in our responsibility. We as men must rise to this. We must also deal with the deviant element that is in our clergy, that is in all of the aspects of our leadership. And that deviant element of homosexuality and that deviant element of immoral theology has to be dealt with. Very, very simply, we have to deny the voice to these blasphemers, these evildoers, these ones who are leading our children astray, who are turning our children against us and ultimately against God the Father. Please have the power to speak truth to power. Have the power and the fortitude to speak the truth, to speak the holy name of Jesus and to intone the Blessed Mother and ask her intercession always and everywhere to be present to those who are discharging the priestly duties to be more Christ-like, to be pure, for all of us to regain purity. St. Thomas Aquinas in Summa Congentales, section 156, talks about any attempt to regain purity, the deviant practice and the habitual mortal sin must cease. Before this church can be purified, the deviant practices must cease. Before this church can be purified, the deviant Practices the aberrant theology must cease. We must return to right order and right relationship with God the Father through our reclaimed faith. Thank you so much for this opportunity, for spending this little uh, piece of this first Friday morning. And
0: Kyle, we lost you a little bit there. So if you're just listening or tuning in, that was Kyle Clement. He is founder of LiberCristo.org. You can go to his website, LiberCristo.org. Till we meet again next, next First Friday. You have been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.
3: Salve Regina, Mote Misericordiae, Pisa Dulcedo, Espes Nostra Salve. A te clamamus, Exules Filiebe, A te suspiramus, Gementes et flantes, in hac lacrimarum vale. Ega ergo ad bocata nostra, idus tuos misericordes oculos ad nos At Et Jesu benedictum fructum ventris tui, no peace for stock exceed endure